what does this mean? Martin Luther asked that question 500 years ago to help regular people connect to the Christian journey. In the days of Lent, this season that leads up to Easter, the church is invited to reconnect to the word. In these next few minutes, the pastors of Gloria Day Lutheran Church in St. Paul will talk about some of the Bible lessons that we read in church, connecting a 2,000-year-old book to real life in the 21st century. Welcome to What Does This Mean? I'm Pastor Lois Palmeyer, And I'm Pastor Javen Swanson. And I'm Pastor Bradley Schmeling. We decided to do this podcast because sometimes the Bible makes a lot of sense to us and things seem really familiar and we understand it. But sometimes it really doesn't seem to make any sense at all to us. Pastors struggle with the texts sometimes too. And we hope that these little conversations can help us enter these readings a little better and maybe can bring some light into your faith journey too. So we are up to the fifth Sunday of Lent. And I have some more Lenten trivia for you. All right. You've all seen that during Lent, our liturgical color, the color that we uh, decorate the church with and that the pastors are wearing when we're up front. The color is purple. and Is that for the Vikings? Uh, well, some people in Minnesota might think so. The Wildcats of Northwestern? Wild- go, go Cats. Here we go. Right, here we go. <laughs> um, no, it's not, Pastor Lois. Actually, it's about um, – so purple has long been a royal color, a color of royalty, um, which is something I've always known. But, Pastor Bradley, you were just telling me earlier that actually the reason purple became a royal color is that – it's the most expensive, or back in the day, it was the most expensive dye to produce. Um, yeah, I have to go back in my head to seminary class. But I think the purple came from these re- very small shells in the Mediterranean. And so it took a lot of them and it took a lot of time to get the purple out of them. So it was very labor-intensive and rare. So it was the the most expensive dye that was produced. So the color that was often used then by royalty because right, only they were the, the royalty only could afford to use it. Um, and so when we as Christians use that color during the season of Lent, we of course are thinking about how Jesus uh, represents for us a different kind of royalty perhaps than the royalty of the world, um, that Jesus sort of overturns the world's expectations about what it means to be a king um, and to be great. And part of what we are doing in Lent is moving toward Christ's crucifixion and then ultimately his resurrection on Easter. But um, we remember that our king is one who is crucified and, um, but who ultimately triumphs over death and uh, comes to the resurrection. So there's some Lent trivia for you. Thanks, Pastor Javen. Let's take a look then at these readings for the fifth Sunday in Lent. Remember, we're going to do this in three parts, and there'll be a little musical break between each of the reflections. In the space between those readings, I invite you just to take a few deep breaths and center yourself, or if you need to take a break and run an errand, you'll have time to come back, and we'll be here when you come back. 
Pastor Bradley, you have the first reading for this this coming Sunday? Yes, our first reading is from Isaiah, and it's in the 43rd chapter, verses 16 through 21. And this is the second time in the season we've had a reading from the book of Isaiah. And actually, we read from Isaiah a lot during the entire year. And so I know I gave a little bit of historical background last week, but just to kind of recap, the book of Isaiah was written during a time when the people uh, in Jerusalem and the surrounding countryside had been taken into exile by Babylon. And so they have literally lost everything, their uh, temple, the the king was in jail, all of the elite, everything has been taken away from them. So they're really left with kind of questions like, who am I now? Because God promised that we'd have a king forever. God promised Jerusalem. God promised this land. Now we don't have it. So who are we? So the reading that we're going to read today comes near the end of the book. And this comes at a time when it's dawning on them that they're going to be able to return home. And the prophets are starting to say that to them. And what happens is the Persian Cyrus um, becomes king, and he eventually will conquer Babylon. And his strategy for repopulation was to have people be happier. So he let everybody go home. So they would become part of this stream that would get, get, get to go home to their ancestral lands. But that's just beginning to dawn on them right now. Pastor Javen, you want to read it for us? I'd be happy to. Thus says the Lord, who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters, who brings out chariot and horse, army and warrior. They lie down, they cannot rise. They are extinguished, quenched like a wick. Do not remember the former things or consider the things of old. I am about to do a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. The wild animals will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches. For I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, to give drink to my chosen people, the people whom I formed for myself, so that they might declare my praise. This text um, has a little bit of irony in it because on one hand, it's asking people to remember the ways that God had saved the people in the past. It says, you know, look at back to the crossing of the Red Sea when the chariot and the horse, the Egyptian army was drowned in the waters and they came to the other side and they're liberated and um, – So it's kind of saying you've got to remember that God has saved the people in the past so you can have confidence that God is going to do it again. And I think for the people who were originally hearing this, it was dawning on them that they could go home, but there was a 900-mile desert between Babylon and Jerusalem. And so they're starting to think, how in the world – are we going to be able to do this? How are we going to be able to make this journey? And um, in a way, this is kind of the flip side, that in the first story, 
the water is parted and they go across on dry land. In this story, they're going on dry land, which is now going to be filled with water. Mm-hmm. And we should say jackals and ostriches. <laughs> I love Just that. because you can. Yes. Mm-hmm. That we need more biblical stories about ostriches. And more right? hymns too. We were just looking in our hymnal for a hymn that had the word jackal in it there was there was not there was not one not one <laughs> um, but i think like the message in this that i kind of take away is yes remember what god has done because that gives us confidence that god's going to do something new but it's not likely to look like it did before because there's this strange little verse in here that says remember not the former things like don't get stuck on what god's done before cuz Today, it's going to look different than it looked to a previous generation. Um, So I feel like sometimes we get caught up in nostalgia, like, oh, it was – Oh, it was so good back then. Church was easy back then. People people went to church. It was easier to be a Christian out loud then because there were more people. And I nobody at, had stuff scheduled on, at their schools on Wednesday night. We just had the freedom to schedule <laughs> anything we wanted. Right, and Grandma read the Bible, and now I never read the the Bible, and it's just a different time. And I think uh, the message though is to say. Don't get stuck about how it was. Look look with different eyes because God is doing something now. Don't miss it. If you think about too much of the past, you'll miss what actually God is doing now, which is going to widen our circle and make the future bigger than even the one we could imagine from the past. Yeah, you said there's an irony in this passage because I feel like so much of what we read in the Hebrew scriptures or what we call often the Old Testament um, is about trying to teach the people their stories and have them remember God's faithfulness to their people throughout time so that in their time of difficulty, they feel like they can trust in God. And it feels like so much of what we read about is trying to help the people remember their history and their story. And then here, and even, that's how this passage even begins. Thus says the Lord who makes a way in the sea, a path, you know, it recounts all these things in their past and then says, don't remember those things. I'm doing a new thing. Um, and I think actually both those things are important. Remembering our history is important um, because that helps us imagine a way into the future. But sometimes you're right, Pastor Bradley, we can get sort of stuck in nostalgia rather than having our history propel us forward. Right. I think the poignant question in this text is, how are we going to get home? How are we going to have what we need? And it makes me remember the time when my father was dying of kidney cancer and the family had gathered and, uh, we couldn't see this at the time because we were so focused on our grief and his death and it was so hard to imagine our family without him. Um, but I remember sitting on the bed eating pizza, all all of us together there eating pizza and my dad wasn't conscious at that time. He was He was there. And all of us talking 
And I, I look back on that moment and think that even then, even in that death, God was renewing and changing the relationships in our family. Now, we would, we'd love to go be able to go back to the former things and have him with us, but we can't. Um, but our family has been renewed and reconnected through that experience. Wow. That's beautiful. Maybe we should leave this reading with that thought and take a little break so we can come back to another reading. Welcome back. Our second reading today is from Philippians chapter 3, verses 4b through 14. That 4b, again, uh, is telling us to read the second half of verse 4 um, and to leave out the first half. So what if I accidentally read the whole thing? It's just fine if okay. you do. Okay. Your heart you do. and mind will be bigger. Right. <laughs> and your spirit. <laughs> Paul, the Apostle Paul, wrote this letter to the Philippians, the people living in Philippi. And uh, he wrote it while he was in prison. Somehow, we don't know exactly where he was in prison or for what, but obviously he encountered some sort of um, opposition to his ministry that landed him in jail. And so now he's writing to the Philippians, who it seems are also experiencing some opposition to their ministry and to their practicing this new kind of Christian faith. Um, And Paul writes these really loving words of encouragement to them, even as he's sitting in jail himself, as if to encourage them in their own struggles um, and to say, stay strong in the faith. Don't back down in the face of opposition. So that's a little context for today. Pastor Lois, would you go ahead and read this for us? If anyone else has reason to be confident in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, a member of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Yet whatever gains I had, these I have come to regard as loss because of Christ. More than that, I regard everything as loss because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I regard them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but one that comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God based on faith. 
I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the sharing of his sufferings by becoming like him in his death, if somehow I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this or have already reached the goal, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Beloved, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but this one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the heavenly call of God in Christ Jesus. Thank you, Pastor Lois. So as I was reading this text again, I was thinking about a conversation I had once with the pastor um, who used to serve as the pastor of Shoby's Table, um, which is a a food truck ministry. It's kind of a new alternative worshiping community uh, started in the St. Paul Area Synod. And at that time, the food truck ministry served the homeless population on the east side of St. Paul. And I remember the pastor telling me, um, you know, the difference between the people I serve and the people you serve isn't that my people are broken and yours aren't. Your people are broken too. It's that your people have more resources and a greater ability to create a sort of facade that makes it look like all is well, even while they are enduring all these painful things. And she said, my people wear all their struggles right on their sleeves for the whole world to see. And that's really stuck with me. Um, And part of what I think about is that I think the privilege that so many of us have that allows us to pretend that all is well is actually a barrier to us being in deep relationship with one another and having a deep relationship with God. I think one of the things I take away from that story is thinking about people who are living so close to the edge, I think actually know and have experienced what it's like to be completely reliant on God's mercy, knowing that they don't have an abundance of resources to draw upon when things are hard. And so when Jesus says, blessed are the poor, I don't think it's that he's saying poverty is a great thing and we should you know, try to get more people in poverty. I think what he's trying to say is people who are living in poverty know what it's like to be completely, fully dependent on the grace of God. And so here in this passage, Paul begins by sort of laying out his credentials and all the things, like his spiritual pedigree, like all the things that made him superior, and then says, all of that is rubbish. It doesn't mean anything, because what I want is to know Christ, and I want to know him crucified and resurrected. For me, this passage is challenging because I feel like I've spent so much of my life trying to build the perfect resume and worked hard in school and tried to get all the right awards, and I try to preach perfect sermons so I can measure up to the two of you on Sunday mornings, <laughs> and I feel like... And um, we're saying, oh, oh, man, we're just old. Well, just every, the, every, the, same old ideas <laughs> on the same old thing. Javen's always got something new to say. Right, he's pushing oh. up. So what you're saying is we all struggle with this, like, trying... We all, we oh. all want to, you know, be these... Um, we work so hard to create this perfect appearance, and... Um, I love, and I think what I find convicting about this passage is that none of that actually matters if we're not deeply rooted in our relationship with God and 
uh, trusting in Christ's death and resurrection. And I think that's the takeaway for me from this. Yeah, I don't know when it happened that people began to think they needed to put on some face to go to church, that somehow in the community of the people of God, we've got to look like we're faithful. You wear your Sunday best. Yeah, Mm -hmm. right, right. Mm -hmm. Your Sunday best. What is that about? And, you know, we hear so often people saying, well, it's just too hard for me to come. I'm afraid I'm going to cry. Like the sharing of our emotions is something to be embarrassed about or even more ashamed of. Like we should be holding it together. I have a friend of mine. This is the place where people should feel most comfortable sharing that and being held in the love of the community. Right. I think we all have had such probably early deep wounds around feeling judged or rejected. And so we find a community and we're afraid, we're deeply afraid that if we're real, people are going to say, well, I don't I don't want you around. You're not really good enough for mm-hmm. me or for being in community with me. And here Paul is saying, you know, honestly, I, I had credentials I could brag about, but that's just rubbish. He calls it nonsense. You know, it, the fact of the matter is what we really have in common is our identity in in Christ's death. That, you know, it, it's Jesus who pours it all out for us that says, really, I've got you all. And none of our perfection or our images of perfection have anything to do with God's deep love for us. Right, right. And I just think there's a powerful word of encouragement here to say, press on, just Keep going. Hold on because God is on this journey with us and we may feel abandoned, but that's that voice is fake news. The truth is we're never abandoned. We're always held on to by, by Jesus. You always have the best final word. And with that, I think we should close. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> Amen. Let, we'll be back in a minute. we're going to read our gospel lesson from John 12, verses 1 through 8. John 11, right before this, is the story of Lazarus being raised from the dead. And you remember that Jesus is at the home of Mary and Martha, and um, they're grieving for their brother, and Jesus calls him out from the tomb. If you Remember, John's gospel is always about contrasts between light and darkness and um, future and past and life and death, all these big images and contrasts. Watch for that as we listen to this next text. Pastor Bradley, would you read it for us? Sure. This is John 12, 1 through 8. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, the home of Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. There they gave a dinner for him. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those at the table with him. Mary took a pound of costly perfume made of pure nard, 
anointed Jesus' feet, and wiped them with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, the one who was about to betray him, said, Why was this perfume not sold for three hundred denarii and the money given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. He kept the common purse and used to steal what was put into it. Jesus said, Leave her alone. She bought it so that she might keep it for the day of my burial. You always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. Thank you. So I have been using essential oils little tiny drops of peppermint um, on my head to help fight my my headaches. And it works. It's kind of amazing how it works. But that is just a tiny drop of a little expensive bottle of peppermint oil. But nard is way more expensive. This was 300 denarii is about a year's wage. So let's say $50,000 in our time, $50,000 worth of nard in one little vase or something that Mary cracks open and pours out. So there's just this huge amount of perfume. It smells a lot. There's a lot of smell of that nard. And there's a sense of just abundant waste just pouring it out. You really get that image right from the start of the story. And I think it brings up all kinds of images. I was saying before how John's gospel always contrasts death and life and present and past at the same time. If you read John 11, the part that comes before this, it says, as it introduces the house of of Martha and Mary, Mary is the one who will anoint Jesus. And then in this chapter, she does. And then here it says, Judas is the one who will betray him, giving us this little hint. There's this forward and backward motion all the time. And then this incredible thing that Jesus says, she had, leave her alone. She's done this for my burial. But he's still living. You know, he's having this conversation. So how is he, is he already dead? Why would you prepare someone for their burial before their death? And Mary seems to get it somehow. Another place I was reading about this says that Generally, there are several anointings in the Bible, um, but it's generally the prophet who anoints the king, uh, a future king, um, which brings us back to that wearing purple and um, the Lenten sense of purple of this royalty is Jesus being anointed by Jesus because she recognizes his royalty. It also brings up that purpleness of the most luxurious amount of dye poured out. She's pouring out this expensive nard on him. But usually it's a a male who anoints a a man who's either going to be the, the king or maybe the priest. Or if women are anointing, it's usually for the dead. Um, or women don't usually anoint men. So how all of a sudden, this awkwardness of this woman coming in here, breaking way too much oil, pouring it all out, letting down her hair, it says, which just has all these awkward, intimate, like, oh, what's going on here? The smell is filling the house. And um, Pastor Bradley. Yeah, I remember learning that this is so much perfume that if you got this on you, you you couldn't just go and wash it off. It would be on you for days. And since the crucifixion is coming, 
that smell would have still been on Jesus while he was on the cross. So I think that's really powerful that while Jesus is dying, he is able to smell this perfume. And I wonder mm. if in that moment the the love that was in that act of anointing is remembered by him, um, which – I'm totally making this up, you know, speculating what was going on in Jesus' mind. But does that remind him that there's something great, that this love is greater than this moment of death and love will carry him through the death? Oh, and the scent of his burial is already bringing him life. That's Well, and that's... Easter, you think of the church filled with the smell oh. of Easter lilies. To me, the Easter is always marked by that coming into the church and smelling the the flowers. I remember my first congregation, they uh, – the, the Easter lilies, this is every church, are always delivered like on Good Friday, you know, because that's when the florists can, can bring them. So they're in some room in the church and in my first congregation, that room was right next to the sanctuary. So we gather for Good Friday worship. It's dark and we're sad and, you know, confessing our sins and all of that. But you can smell the Easter lilies. That on Good Friday, the smell is there, and that's that's hope. So, can I ask you two about this line? That I know what you're going to say. Yeah, because I feel like this is we often hear this used. So, this line, the very last line, uh, "You always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me." And Mm -hmm. I feel like that's often been used to justify keeping people in poverty and not. Right. trying to do anything about it. Well, you know, I think you read the Gospels and after the resurrection, where is Jesus? Jesus is in the poor. Like mm-hmm. um, this is the theology of the cross that if we want to find the heart of God, we go to where there is suffering. Where it's a little they... bit like the Shobi's table story that the people who have experienced – poverty and are living on the edge are the people who actually know what it means to be fully dependent on God. There's something actually really holy about that experience, that they know God's grace. Right. And if if we have uh, a year's worth of something to give away and we want to give that to God, that we can still anoint Jesus by taking those resources and pouring them out for the sake of the world to make the world a a better place, a more loving and just and equitable place. So yes, the poor are always with us, and that is precisely our opportunity to be with the Jesus who is in this text. Mm -hmm. That's exactly what I think too. I think we'll wrap it up here for today. We're very interested in hearing what all of you think what this means. So we'd like you to drop us a note at pastors at org. If you want to know more about Gloria Day Lutheran Church, our web address is org. Thank you to Paul Friesen-Carper for the music that you've heard today. 
We invite you to join us for worship every Sunday at either our 8.15 or 10.45 a.m. services on Sunday with Sunday School for All Ages at 9.30 a.m. During Lent, we gather for worship on Wednesday nights at 7 p.m. Thank you so much for joining us today. Know that whatever you are experiencing, whatever, whatever masks you feel you need to wear or things you need to hide, we believe God is with you and that God loves you and that God will provide what you need for today. This has been What Does This Mean? A podcast created by Gloria Day Lutheran Church in St. Paul, Minnesota. You can find Gloria Day online at www.gloriadaystpaul.org. This podcast has been produced by Minnesota Podcasting, and they can be found online at www.mnpodcasting.com.